So Psalm 32, you can keep your Bibles open there. Um, a grateful life is a beautiful life. I don't think I would have to argue that with any of you. Some of you have people in your life that are just grateful. It seems to be natural or maybe supernatural. They're thankful for everything. And you want to be friends with them. It's easy to be friends with a grateful person. It's hard to get in a fight with them. It's hard to hold a grudge against them. They're just optimistic, glasses half full all the time. Grateful life is a beautiful life. It's compelling, it's attractive, it's powerful, it's contagious. When you're around thankful people, you find yourself being grateful for things maybe you wouldn't otherwise be grateful for. Being around grateful people is, is easy. They're humble, they're optimistic, they're appreciative, they're magnetic. Gratitude is good for you. Now, you don't need an expert to tell you that, but it's interesting to me how sometimes the world catches up with the Bible, and there is a doctor who is recognized as the world's leading scientific expert, expert on gratitude. He holds a PhD, and he sits as the professor of psychology at the University of California, and he said this. I want to quote, put the slide up here so you can follow along. He said, for more than a decade, I've been studying the effects of gratitude on physical health, psychological well-being, and relationships with others. So in other words, our bodies, our minds, and our relationships. How does gratitude affect those realities? And he said, we've studied more than 1,000 people from ages 8 to 80 and found that people who practice gratitude consistently report a host of benefits, stronger immune systems, better sleep, a more outgoing, alert, optimistic, generous, helpful, compassionate, forgiving attitude. Gratitude has been shown to block toxic negative emotions such as envy, resentment, regret, emotions that can destroy our happiness. Gratitude has even been shown to reduce depression, stress, and anxiety. Did you hear that? Gratitude, the grateful life is the good life. It's good for you, it's good for others. And uh, he says that gratitude is the forgotten factor in happiness research. So since gratitude we know is good for us, we didn't have to have an expert tell us that, but he did, because the Bible told us that thousands of years before. Even David says when he withheld confessing his sin to receive the grace of God, uh, it, it shriveled him up. He, 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 was, he was wearied physically, biologically even, even, had that effect on him. So it wouldn't shock you, since gratitude is good for you, it's good for others, that it's also the will of God for you, because God wants what's best for us, doesn't he? And 1 Thessalonians says this, chapter 5, Verses 16 through 19. Rejoice always, Paul says. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. That's, that probably doesn't surprise you um, because gratitude is good for you. It's good for others. It's God's will. And this won't surprise you either. When you live a life that's ungrateful, it's very toxic. It's unhealthy. It's terrible for you spiritually, emotionally. It will shrivel up your soul and damage every relationship you have, being ungrateful will. It can also bind you, uh, excuse me, blind you. It can blind you to all the good gifts that God gave you in your life. Every good and perfect gift, you'll be blinded to the gratitude that you ought to be having for those things. And instead, it makes you focus on the things you don't have. Anybody else suffer that? <laughs> When it comes to being grateful, you don't focus on the things you have, it's the things you don't have. 
<laughs> right? I'd like more money. I'd like more friends or better friends. Right? <laughs> I'd like a spouse. I'd like to have children. I'd like to have more children, maybe. I'd like more hair. <laughs> I'd like a different body, less wrinkles, less body fat. I'd like a better job. I'd like a bigger house. I'd like better neighbors, a nicer car, a better church, a shorter sermon, whatever it is. I'd like a different life, please. That's ingratitude. And ingratitude leads you to, to live life, to view life really like a Lemony Snicket's book. A series of unfortunate events. That's my life. Instead of focusing on the good things that God has done for you. Wishing cancels gratitude. You cannot be grateful for something you don't have. I remember when Ben Carson said this. I think at a debate in 2016 when he was running for office. He said, I already won the lottery. I know the Lord. It was so encouraging to hear a presidential candidate say that. <laughs> But gratitude does require moving your mind, your heart, your eyes from things you don't have to the things you do. And it doesn't really take an imagination. It takes paying attention. It takes paying attention. You'll have to expand your capacity to pay attention. And I think that's what sermons are for. I think that's why we come to church. We come to church to be more astonished at what God has done for us through Jesus Christ than when we came in. We come to be reminded. That's what communion is for. Jesus said... This you need to do in remembrance of me because you'll forget. You'll forget what I did for you. It's human nature. It's human part of our depravity to forget God's goodness. One man wrote this. I doubt that there is such a thing as a measure of spirituality. But if there is, gratitude would be it. And then he says this. Only the grateful are paying attention. Man, that hit me like a ton of bricks in my study this week. Only... The grateful are paying attention. Only the grateful are paying attention. They are grateful because they pay attention, and they pay attention because they are grateful. And then I found this quote by G.K. Chesterton. We're going to get to this psalm in a second, I promise. This is all just introduction. G.K. Chesterton claimed that giving thanks is the highest form of thought and that gratitude is, get this. He said gratitude is happiness doubled by wonder. Happiness doubled by wonder. And I love that. That fits this psalm perfectly because it opens up with blessed, happy. That's happy in Hebrew. Happy is the man or the woman who has experienced this reality in their life because of God. Happiness doubled by wonder. I want to build on that. I want us to, to pay attention today to what God has done for us and leave more astonished than when we came in here. And this psalm can help. And I know how this goes. I've heard so many sermons on Thanksgiving in my life, more than I care to remember. And you know what? I've got to be, can I be honest? You guys love it when I'm honest. Most of the sermons on Thanksgiving I've heard, I don't like. You know why? Because they were just pressing on my will, pressing on my will and wailing on me. Be thankful. Be happy. Have more gratitude in your life. They were telling me something I already knew. I know I'm supposed to be thankful. I know I'm supposed to be grateful. The problem is, sometimes I don't know how. Maybe you're in the same boat. Maybe you came hoping and praying that, oh, it's Thanksgiving. Now, pastor is going to stand up there and wail on us. Be thankful, be thankful, be thankful, be grateful. You ingrates, be thankful. <laughs> but you already know that. 
you already know there's a lot of stuff you're supposed to be doing in your life and you don't find the power or the freedom the willpower to be able to do them so you don't need to come to church and have a pastor tell you do better try harder pull yourself up by your bootstraps and get out there and get going you don't need that you need help you need help being grateful and this psalm is going to give us a lot of help because listen some of these experts they say now here's how you you cultivate a life of gratitude you keep a gratitude journal I'm not gonna scoff at that hey whatever it takes right but I will tell you this here's what the experts will tell you just pick out some things that you're grateful for that you already have you know like you got your health or you've got a car or you got a roof over your head or you got friends to share Thanksgiving with those are awesome those are great but I want to tell you this is the way as a gospel preacher this is the way I look at that those are just little twigs and leaves of kindling that's what that is they're great don't get me wrong they're from God every perfect and good gift is from God I have some boys in my house and they're pyromaniacs every day of my life they wake me up and say let's go build a fire let's go build a fire and if I don't build a fire with them they're gonna build one anyway without me in the backyard and here's what they do they go get pine needles and they get dry twigs and leaves when it doesn't rain and, and they'll get you're thinking you're a terrible parent I know but just bear with me so they build this fire and then one of them will go in the woods and find this big log that's wet and got moss and lichen on it and all kind and they'll go and they'll drop it in the fire and it'll put the fire out and they're like daddy why want this light I think a lot of us if we're honest the things that we're got ga- we're gathering these these twigs and these pine needles some little kindling for to be grateful and to be happy and to be thankful and then this big wet log of affliction and suffering comes bad news comes and we we try our best man we position it in that little fire we try to we try to puff that fire and get it but it extinguishes the flame there's not enough heat there's not enough fire and so when these big wet logs of affliction come the little the little prayer journals are just a bygone thing are you are you are you guys tracking with me does that happen to you it happens to me we need something bigger we need a bigger fire we need more heat well David's gonna get a give us a big fire he's gonna give us some heat so that whatever the furnace of affliction brings the furnace of affliction that kind of ruined the analogy did <laughs> whatever those big wet logs are that, that come into your life you will be able to, to, to have some gratitude and be thankful not just in spite of them but sometimes I dare say this even because of them you'll see them as God's gracious gifts to you grace leads to gratitude that's what this psalm is really about and I told you last week and I'm sorry I need to repeat this guys grace is outrageously offensive to people you know that right it's outrageously offensive and I told you it doesn't sell Movies about forgiveness and, and, and grace, nobody goes to see those. Because all that does is make people angry. We're all about retribution and vengeance and revenge. That's what we want in our hearts. We think grace is a really good idea maybe for somebody else, but it's outrageously offensive. Paul Zoll said this, the argument that grace is unfair, we see somebody committed a terrible crime, and we see mercy and grace and pardon extended to them, and it makes us angry, because it doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem fair for the victims, right, if we're honest? The person that got off scot-free for the murder, well, that's not fair for the family left behind. That's not fair, that's not justice for the victims, but listen, grace is not always for just victims. Grace is for criminals. 
It's for criminals, right? Grace is offensive until we need it. Then we, then we crave it. Paul's all said this, the argument that grace is unfair, the notion that the definitive forgiveness of the criminal is wrong, that's pharisaical, he says. That's legalistic. It disappears like spiderwebs before a broom when the tables of life are turned and you become the accused. And remember, we, we talked about Peter denying Jesus three times, cursing Christ, and seeing Jesus turn and lock, lock eyes with him. And we heard about Peter being restored and Peter being forgiven. And then you look at the rest of Peter's life, and it was a life of gratitude. Man, he could do anything. He even was crucified upside down by request because he didn't feel like he was worthy to be crucified the same way Jesus was. And listen, you see all the other encounters that people had with God when they deserved judgment and condemnation, but they got one-way unconditional love, and it turned their world upside down. One of my favorite passages is John chapter 8, the adulterous woman. Do you remember that? She was caught in the very act of adultery, and they brought her to Jesus. And she was cast down at the feet of Christ, and they said, Teacher, we caught this woman in adultery in the very act. The law of Moses says we should stone her. See, that's what the law always does. The law accuses. The law condemns. The law says death. Capital offense. Let her be stoned. And they say, but what do you say? You remember what Jesus said? He couldn't, he, couldn't de- he couldn't deny what the law of Moses said. It did say that, right? He said, all right, who here is qualified to be her executioner? Whoever is without sin, go ahead and start throwing rocks at her. And it says they all left because I think their conscience accused them, and they left. And you know what Jesus said to her next? Now, put yourself in the shoes of that woman. She was, she, I can't imagine, man, in the ancient Near East, she was expecting all those men to pick up big rocks and crush her body. And there's this man, Jesus, standing there. And he says, woman, where are your accusers? Are there none left? And she said, none, my Lord. And he said this, then neither do I accuse you. Go and sin no more. Now, I want to ask you a question. I love John's gospel because it leaves so much to the imagination. That's the last we hear of that woman. Man, I want to meet her in heaven. I, I would have loved to watch the rest of her life. How many of you think she returned to a life of prostitution? How many of you think she did that after being pardoned by by Christ? I don't think she did. I think she was so blown away and astonished by the grace that was shown her that she lived the rest of her life in gratitude and indeed obeyed what he told her because he gave her a promise before he gave her a command. We get that backwards. We're like, go clean your life up and then come back and we'll see That's what a lot of sermons are. Try harder, do better, and then maybe we can talk about God accepting you. That's completely backwards. You don't work to assurance, you work from assurance. That's the fuel for your life, is a life of gratitude. So Peter was restored, this adulterous woman was restored. Didn't Jesus say in in one setting that he who is forgiven much, loves much, right? The criminal who's pardoned, oh man, Let him hug the judge, right? He knows what he deserves and he knows what he got, and it wasn't what he deserved. Well, David, in Psalm 32, you can imagine when David committed adultery with Bathsheba, and look, I told you this, some people would even say rape, because we don't read anything about David getting consent. I know that sounds, you're like, oh, I don't say that, but listen, guys, that's in the Bible. He sent for her, he was the king. And he said, I want that woman, bring her to me. We don't read anything about her saying, oh, great, I get to have an affair with King David. It's this complete silence. 
And he went into her, and she became pregnant, and then David's got a problem. He's got a wife who's not his wife, and she's pregnant. And her husband's a soldier, one of David's 30 mighty men, and so David had to cover up this problem. I mean, man, the Bible, the Bible's not boring, guys. It's not boring. There's like this intricately woven plot, like here's King David, a man after God's heart. He messed up, worse than messed up. What he's done is a capital offense. He deserves to die for this. And for a year, he covered this up, conspiracy, murder. He had her husband murdered. He tried to trick him, getting him drunk so he would go and sleep with his wife, and then he could say, the baby's his. It didn't work. God loved David too much to let that work. So here's David. A year later, baby's born. He marries Bathsheba, and he thinks his problems are over, but they're just getting started because God sends a prophet named Nathan, and he confronts David. And he tells a little story. You remember the story that he told? And David gets angry at this parable. And he says, the man in this parable, he deserves to die. And Nathan says, you're the man. You are the man. You did this. This is you. And David was struck with conviction. And then he heard these words. He heard these words from the prophet. The Lord has put away your sin, and you're not going to die. Now, guys, when you, when you read a sentence like that in the Bible, that's supposed to be heart-stopping. Heart-stopping. What you've done deserves death, but God has put away your sin. You're not going to die. God's going to pardon you, David. He's going to pardon you. He's going to forgive you. He's going to cleanse you. He's going to take your sin as far from, as, as the east is from the west. Man, that's supposed to astonish us. Now, if you're David, that's good news. If you're Bathsheba's big brother, not, not good news, right? Very offensive. Makes you angry. That's grace. Grace is offensive when you're a victim. But man, when you're the criminal, it's such good news, isn't it? I mean, it's good news for the victim too. That's another sermon for another day. But this is David. Psalm 32 is David reflecting on what God has done for him. So check this out. Let's just read the first few verses here. I'm not going to preach for for a long time today. I just want to prepare our hearts for, for the Lord's Supper. It says, Psalm 32, a mascal of David. Blessed, that means happy. Super blessed in Hebrew here is in the plural. So this will be blessing upon blessed happinesses. The man that he's going to describe here has multiple happinesses <laughs> in Hebrew. It's even, it doesn't even really translate well into our English translations. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. I just want to camp out there in those first few verses for a minute. You know that there are over 50 words in Hebrew for sin. Did you know that? It's like, dang, man, it wasn't one enough. <laughs> no, man, the Hebrews were really deep thinkers and their language was concrete and it's... I had the hardest time with Hebrew in seminary because it's just so unlike anything we've ever experienced linguistically with English. Hebrews had word pictures for everything. Everything was a picture of a picture of a picture. And so there were 50 words and they all had different nuances. But there are the three main words for sin are used in this song. David used them. And I think he's using them for a reason. This is a master. This is a teaching. David wants to teach us something about what God has done about our sin. And the first thing he does is, is he wants us to see, hey, this is what sin is. So the three words that he uses are transgression and sin and iniquity. 
Now, let's look at the first one real quick, okay? Transgression. In Latin, trans means, uh, it, it means across, like transatlantic flight. Trans means across, and gress means to step. It means to step across something. And so in the Hebrew thought, the word transgression means uh, here's a line drawn in the sand by God, and you have shaken your fist at God in defiance, and you've said no. Just like a little kid, you know, we all, when you, when you have children, you tell them, don't do this. <laughs> what does that provoke? What reaction does it provoke? You draw a line in the sand and say, now, now children, don't, don't go this far. Don't come here. And they automatically want to step up. That's, that's the word that David uses uh, to describe his sin is transgression. It literally means to step across. And the one word that would best depict this in English is rebellion. Sin is rebellion. It is defiance. It's God sitting on the throne of his universe, directing history where he wants, having and claiming authority over our lives, having a crown on his head and a scepter in his hand and saying, your life belongs to me. And it's us saying, no, it doesn't. This is my life and I'll wear the crown and I've got the scepter and I'm the, I'm the captain of my soul and I'm the master of my fate. No thank you to any of the things you're trying to do with me. It's, you remember whenever, um, I think in 2016 when, this is not a political statement, it's an illustration, okay? When Donald Trump won the presidential election and there were all these protests that broke out all across the nation. I mean, they were burning effigies of him. Uh, they were having protests. They were blocking off. They were blocking traffic. And I remember one of the, the memes that you, you would see on posters, um, it, it was this, not our president. Now, this is regardless of how you feel about Trump. People either hate him or they love him, right? But that sentiment, not our president, that's what transgression means. Not my king. Not my ruler. It's like the parable Jesus said about a vineyard owner who leased it out to tenants and went away into a far country, and he was sending these workers to reap the harvest and to collect the, the rent, right? The vines, the, the wine. And when he came, they treated him badly, and they kicked him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. And they said, we will not have this man rule over us. That's what defiance means. That's what transgression means. That's the first word. The second word is just sin. It's just sin. And in Hebrew, it's an archery term. It's just like the New Testament. Uh, the New Testament correlation is harmartia in Greek, and it means uh, to, to, to fall short. It's the same equivalent in Hebrew. It, it means you're firing this arrow. Here's God's law. Here's what it says you're supposed to do. Whereas transgression is you don't do it. Uh, sin means you fall short. You can't. You're not able. You can't do it. You don't have the power. You don't have the ability. And a lot of the times you don't have the desire. It's falling short. An arrow that always misses the target. It's God's standard and we cannot make it. It's failure to obey God's law. You fell short. And then the third one is iniquity. Transgression is you step over. You're a rebel. You're defiant. Sin is falling short. It's, it's, it's failure to obey God's law. And the third one is iniquity. And this is a really interesting word. It means crooked. It means twisted. It means perverted. Not necessarily in a sexual way. Perversion, the word perversion doesn't always have a sexual application. 
It just means that's perverted. That's not the way it's supposed to be used. Now, the first one, transgression, is how you relate to God. You're defiant. The second one, sin, is how you relate to His law. You fall short. The third one is how you relate to yourself. God made you to be this and to do this, and, and you're, twi- you're crooked, you're bent, you're bent, and, and, and you're twisted out of shape. You're not living right. This is not who God made you to be. That's what sin does to you. It distorts things. It twists you. We were made upright, the Bible says, but we've sought out many schemes and become corrupt. We've become polluted. We've become stained and defiled. I know these are hard words to hear, but trust me, this is the bad news you have to hear to be astonished. I think that's so often what we try to do. We try to shortcut. Isn't God good? Isn't God's love? Let's not talk about sin and judgment. Let's not talk about wrath. But guys, if we bypass that, then we cheapen grace. Because grace, it's free to us, but it costs God something. Very valuable and very precious. So we can't bypass that. Those are the three words, transgression and sin and iniquity. So with that being said, let's, let's look at our outline. Very quick outline here, okay? A grateful life. What's David saying here? We've got transgressions, we've got sin, and we've got iniquity. Those are the three words that describe the problem that every human being faces. We're cut off from God because of these things. We're far away from God and we can't find our way back. So what has God, what has God done about this? What did God do for David? A man after God's own heart that lost his way and committed atrocities. I'm sure David could have never imagined doing these things when he was a shepherd writing the 23rd Psalm. And Psalm chapter, isn't it interesting? The same word for blessed in Hebrew is used in Psalm chapter 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. Oh, but guess what? Psalm 32, that's exactly what he did. What do you do when, you, when, when your Psalm 1 life crumbles? Here's David walking not according not walking with the ungodly, but then he fails and he does. And we all do. Anybody in here ever walked with the ungodly? Been a transgressor and committed iniquity and committed sin? I have. David has. You have. We all have. There was only one spotless lamb, the Bible says. It's Jesus. So what has he done? What has God done? Well, number one... It, Point one, your transgression is carried away. Point two, your sin is covered. And point three, your iniquity is not counted against you. So let's, let's look at these one at a time. This is really beautiful and it will lead us into our time together. Your transgression has been carried away. You, you, you've got this defiance, you've got this rebellion against God. You've committed, him, you've committed it against Him. So what is He going to do? You know, I told you last week, if you have ever expected judgment and deserve judgment and instead receive grace, that's a miracle and that will transform you. Have you ever been in a position like that? You were waiting on the hammer to fall. You were waiting on judgment to come. That's where David was. And God did something astonishing. He did something astonishing. He pardoned David. He extended grace to David and extended unmerited favor and unconditional love to David. And there's a powerful word, and this is so interesting to me, There's a powerful word in Psalm 32, and it says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. That word forgiven, it is literally the word NASA. (laughs) It's Nassau in Hebrew, but it's NASA. Now, what does that make you think of? Over here, is it Kennedy Space Center? Is it in Port whatever over in, I've never been there. I've watched some of the launches. I think, you know, NASA, it's an acrostic. Somebody could probably yell out what it stands for. 
N-A-S-A, something aeronautical, space, something or other. But I think probably there was somebody that knew Hebrew when they were trying to start that program and they wanted to slip that. I'm serious. I really believe that because you know what the word, na- you know what the word forgiveness means here? It means to lift up. Did you know that? It literally means to launch. What did God do with our transgression? He took it and he lifted it up and he launched it into a place that it can never come back from. I love the language the Bible uses about forgiveness. I was telling this to somebody the other day. You know, one of the Psalms, Psalm 103 maybe, I don't remember which one. It says, he has taken your iniquity, your sin, and removed it from you. Launched it, lifted it away as far as the east is from the west. Now, you know, we have a globe that we live on, unless you're a flat earther. And if you're not, if you are, don't raise your hand. (laughs) We live on a sphere, a globe, a planet. And there's an equator around it, right? And that line separates what? The north from the south. But technically, I could put one foot on the north and the other foot on the south. Right? And if God says, I've removed your sin as far as the north is from the south, meh, that's not very far. But you know what God says? He says, I have removed your sin from you as far as the east is from the west. Now you go find the line where the east and the west meet and tell me if you're not encouraged because there ain't no line. <laughs> There's not one. Pardon my, pardon my English. There ain't one. Doesn't exist. Because you know what? He launched it. He lifted it. I'm a big Superman fan. And I'm almost 45, so when all these Superman movies were coming out, I was alive and I was able to watch them. It was a good time in America. (laughs) Or maybe it wasn't. Just scratch that, all right? Forget it. 1987, Superman 4 came out. The Quest for Peace. How many people saw it? Come on. Man, you guys are disappointing me. So Superman can do anything, right? He's the man of steel and he's for the American way and truth and liberty and all that. So he gets a letter from a kid, and he's like, Superman, why don't you take away all the nuclear weapons? So he goes, I don't know. I guess I will. And so he went to this summit that they were having, and he convinced them all to fire their nuclear missiles up into outer space. And I seriously, I mean, it sounds kind of cheesy. I thought it would be a good illustration. It sounds kind of cheesy now that I say it out loud. But they fired all their nuclear weapons into outer space, and Superman, this is a true story, guys. You can YouTube it. He took this huge, massive net, and he collected all these nuclear weapons. Seriously, and he got, he went to Lowe's, I guess, and got a grab a hook, and he like put them together, and Superman's up in outer space going, and he launches all these toxic nuclear weapons that were a threat to democracy and the American way and all the global peace, and he threw them into the sun and they exploded. And I thought, maybe that's a little glimpse of what we're supposed to think of when we read this. Your and my transgression, does that, does that bother you to think? If you're left alone with your thoughts, how do I relate to God? I am such a defiant, I'm such a rebel. Does that crush you? I mean, it, it, in all honesty, apart from the gospel, it should crush you. And one day it will crush you when the reality of judgment comes crushing down. But I, I don't want to I can't ponder that. I don't want to ponder that. And, and because of Jesus, I don't have to. Because you know what? The Bible says that God has taken my defiance, my rebellion, And he has launched it up in outer space. That does sound cheesy. But that's what he's done. He's Nassau. He's forgiven it. He's launched it in outer space. And I'll never see it. I'll never deal with it again. God did that in a way that only God can do. That's the first thing that he did. He carried away our transgression. And even what Superman does with the nuclear weapons, that does not compare with what Jesus did to our sin. Because listen, we know, we know the reality of justice. How did he launch it away? He put it all on Christ. Christ became our sin bearer. 
He bore our sin. The Bible says something that if it didn't say it in Scripture, it would be heresy. It says that Jesus became sin. He became what he was not, which is why he, in the garden, was agonizing because he knew he was about to be the sin bearer for humanity. Second point, what did, what did God do? David says, not only blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, but he also says whose sin is covered. Whose sin is covered. This word covered, it means concealed. It's the word really for atonement. It's like we had this stain, this, this something that can't be removed. It's like if you had bright white carpet that, you know, a million dollar rug from Arabia or something, I don't know, and, and, and you were drinking dark red wine and you spilled the wine on the rug and there's absolutely no way you can cover that. I was a carpenter once upon a time and I had a guy working for me and we were working in a really nice house. I was already nervous and there was a hardwood floor underneath us that had been sanded and it was going to get refinished. And I don't know what we were thinking, but we were staining some furniture in that room. And there was this dark mahogany. I mean, maho- have you ever worked with stained mahogany, man? It's, it's dark. I mean, I can't think of a better name for that than stained, <laughs> right? St- In fact, I could be a marketing campaigner. Stained does what it says it does. But we, my worker, I'm going to blame it on him, okay? He spilled like a whole, I don't know if it's a pint or a quart. I mean, I heard it tip over. Man, my, my heart, because I'm thinking, chishing, there went. Like, not only will we not make any money on this job, I'm, I'm probably going to lose thousands of dollars trying to fix what he did. And it went all over that floor. And I'm telling you, man, we got, <laughs> we got paint thinner. They weren't home. <laughs> I wish I had a YouTube clip of my face when that happened and what I did. I got paint thinner, I got all kinds of stuff. I mean, I made it look worse than it did, but that stain, I could not get that stain up, no matter what I did. And I eventually, I called the owner, I said, man, I, I gotta talk to you. And he came and he said, and, he, and we were friends, and he was a Christian, and I said, man, bro, I'm, I'm so sorry, man, my, 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 my worker, you know, he's minimum wage and everything, he, <laughs> and he said, you know what, I don't want you to worry about that because I got this beautiful rug that we bought and I was going to put it in here anyway and it'll just cover that stain up and nobody ever see it. And I was like, man, what? That's amazing. And that's a terrible illustration because that's not really what this means. <laughs> see, God doesn't just cover, cover up your sin. It's, it's still really there and he's just hiding it. That's not what he does. He like expunges it. He gets the Merlot stain out of the white Arabian rug. He, he, he's able to go somehow in, in the grain of that wood and pull all of that stain out and place it on Christ and let him bear it on the cross. That's what this means. Not only does he cast away our sins, but he, he conceals, he covers. He doesn't exploit and, and, and expose your sin and, and, and shame you when you confess it. That's what David is saying. When David was silent, it was destroying him, eating him alive. When he confessed it, God said, now I'll cover your sin. When you hide it, I'm going to expose it. Don't you know that's how Christianity works? You've done something, you're carrying this terrible secret, you're trying to hide it, and God says, be sure your sin will find you out. You hide it, I'm going to expose it. You confess it, I'm going to cover it. Don't you love that? In the Bible, Christianity is just so counterintuitive. And here's the third thing that he does. Your iniquity is not counted. Look at this, verse 2. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Now, that's justification, right? You've got all these marks against you. 
If there was an account ledger and it was every thought, every word, every deed that was contrary to what the Bible says and God's law says, you got all these black marks against you. And how good and astonishing would the news be that God says, you know what? None of these things, I'm actually going to count against you, none of them. Would you be thinking, how can you do that? And again, it's, it's justification. It's, he's going to take all of these marks against you, and he's going to put them on the account of Christ. But that's only half the good news. The other half is he's going to take all this perfect righteousness of Jesus' life. Jesus lived, he had the perfect day, the perfect week, the perfect life. He's going to take Jesus' life, and he's going to count that towards you. That's called imputed righteousness. You don't get imputed guilt. Your imputed guilt goes to Christ. His imputed righteousness goes to your account. What a glorious exchange, right? Isn't that incredible? That's what this psalm is talking about. That is what this psalm is talking about. J.I. Packer said that there are two things that keep people from appreciating grace. One is how big the debt is, how great your debt is that you owe to God because of your sin. And the other one is the magnitude of the provision, the magnitude of the provision, what was paid. I know those sound similar, but they're, they're actually different. And I have heard, I've heard this analogy. Um, you know, the, the Bible says that uh, believe the gospel, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the word gospel, it's this fancy Greek word that actually means good news. It's good news. You know, what separates the message of Christianity from the, the message of every other religion is this. Christianity has good news. The gospel's good news. It's not good advice. There's a big difference. It's good news. Good news means that something has been done for you on your behalf. It's already been done. It's finished. It's accomplished. You don't add anything to it. It's finished. It's a proclamation. It's a declaration. Something that happened outside of you, in spite of you, was done. That's good news. Every other religion has good advice. There's something for you to do still. And Martin Lloyd-Jones preached on 1 Corinthians 15, and he, he des- described it like this. Here's the difference between Christianity and every other religion in the world and why we should be grateful, okay? This, this will be leading to a grateful life. Uh, let's suppose that you live in the capital city of a, of, a, of a country, and the king has to go off to war. There's a terrible war being fought with, with all the cantankerous countries around and this king led the charge into battle and off he went and they're fighting this war and everyone back in the capital city is is biting their fingers gnawing their nails waiting to hear are we going to live or are we going to die because this battle is going to determine the rest of our life and good news the king has secured victory the enemy has been vanquished the kingdom has been regained and so he sends good newsers he sends this envoy this, this messenger With good news, he sends a runner back to the capital city to proclaim, hey, there's good news. The battle's been won. We are victorious, and there is nothing else we have to do. Peace is going to be ushered in and established here. That's good news. That's the gospel. Something's been done for you that has nothing to do with you, and now you can enjoy the benefits of it. That's the gospel. Every other religion has good advice, and it goes like this. The king is off fighting this battle. And he's doing the best he can, and the battle's still being waged. And so he sends a dispatcher back, and he says, look, guys, the king's doing the best that he can, but we're not really sure if we're going to make it or not. So here's what you need to do. Get the archers, get the cavalry, 
get the infantry, strategically position yourself, get every fighting age boy and, and, and toddler you can find, get a weapon in their hand. You're about to, to have the fight of your life. See, that's every other religion in the world. There's still something for you to do, and we don't really know the outcome. You know, when Zach uh, was, was here, he led worship last week. He was the worship leader at Grace Life for the first three years. Every holiday season, he comes into town, and he calls me up, and he says, let's have lunch. I'm like, all right, let's have lunch. Where do you want to go? He said, let's go to Cheddar's. I said, I've never been there. He said, you'll love it. So we go to Cheddar's in Daytona Beach. And this is a long story. I want to make it short. I was kind of in between. I didn't know. Have you ever had a debit card and you wanted to pay for somebody's lunch, but you weren't really sure how much money was in your account? This is not me having a pity party. Just, I'm a terrible accountant, okay? I just, I didn't, I didn't know how much money was in my account, but I wanted to be magnanimous. Zach's going to leave worship for us. I'm like, I can buy this kid lunch. So I said, Zach, it's on me today. And he goes, no, 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 I got it. I'm like, nope, it's on me. I got it. So <laughs> Zach ordered something. <laughs> he ordered something expensive. I don't remember what it was, some, some amazing sandwich he got. And I'm, I'm sitting there like, oh, boy. <laughs> All right. Um, and so, so we were eating, and then a, a, a waiter came, and he said, I'm going to bring your check. And he said, but uh, something has happened. He said, the entire uh, debit card system at Cheddar's broke. It shut down. And we, we can't fix it. We're working on it. We're doing the best we can. Uh, but if you guys could just be patient. I'm like, hey, okay, cool. Yeah, no, yeah, no problem. And uh, so he came back five minutes later and he said, look, man, it, it looks like it's not going to be fixed. So um, I don't know how long you guys are going to stay here, but enjoy your conversation. And I guess if, you know, if you're still here and we haven't fixed it, it's going to be Cheddar's is going to comp this. This is on the house. And I'm like, man, that's awesome. So, so check this out. Here's the illustration. So we sat there, and we were just really getting started. I hadn't seen the guy in a year. So we got a lot to catch up on. So we're sitting there having small chat, and I kept finding that my mind was going to, I wonder how long before we need to leave, so this is on the house. Are you with me? I'm just being honest with you. I didn't want, I didn't want, I didn't know if I had enough money in my account. I didn't want, <laughs> I wanted a free meal for me and for Zach. So honestly, I'm not really enjoying our conversation. I'm so distracted. He's like, are you okay? I'm like, yeah, I'm, um, yeah, I'm okay. I'm like, what, what time do you got, Zach? I'm like, now, do you have, you have plans later on today? Listen, I think a lot of people live their Christian life that way, and I'm not kidding. All laughter aside, we're just not really sure how this is going to go. Is it on the house? Is this covered? Is, is, is this really covered? Is God really taking care of this? Or is there a waiter that's going to come and say like, hey, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, there was a mistake, and you still owe some money. You still got a, a pretty serious debt. I don't know if you're going to be able to cover it. I think that's the Christianity that a lot of people live, and it's eating them alive. And there's no joy. There's no grateful life. There's no thanksgiving. There's paranoia. I meet people like that all the time and try to help them, and all I do is talk about the gospel. I'm like, man, you have not yet plumbed the debts of what God has done for you. You don't get it. You really don't get it, and that's all we're going to talk about for the next six sessions. We're going to talk about the gospel, and it's going to be amazing because it is so astonishing. It will, like, blow your world to pieces, the old world. And by the way, the waiter did come back, and he said, hey, good news, man, we got it fixed. And I'm like, that's not good news. And I paid $20 plus tip, and I had enough money barely in my account to, to, to cover it. But anyway, aren't you grateful? We're not, that's not where we're at spiritually. We're playing with house money, guys, so to speak. It's been covered. Your sins have been launched. 
to a place they're never going to come. But you don't have, you've got nothing to worry about. You've got nothing to hide. You've got nothing to prove. You've got nothing to fear. And you've got nothing to lose. Only the gospel can give you those assurances. No other religion in the world can. It's just going to be good advice for you. And that's why we come to this table with grateful hearts. We don't have to go searching for twigs and pine needles. Man, that's kindling. We got the thing that can handle the big, wet, fat log, right? God has, we have blessing upon blessing upon blessing. Our sins have been launched. They've been covered. They have been, what was the last word? Carried away, covered, not counted. Man, whatever comes into my life, I'm going to be able to handle it, man, because my heart is anchored and secured by that good news. Is yours, is your heart anchored with that good news? Let's let it be anchored today as we come to the table. Let's pray. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, thank you for this good news. It is too good to be true. It is too wonderful to be true, but it is. And you know that our hearts doubt that, and we need assurance, and that's why you tell us as often as we gather together to celebrate communion to do it because we are forgetful people. We have gospel amnesia, and we need to be reminded that you love us, that you care for us, that you have really forgiven us. You're not angry with us, Lord, in Christ. Your anger has been absorbed in, in your son, Jesus. The jury is not out about how you feel about us when we've had a bad day, when we've had a bad week, when we haven't read our Bible, when we haven't prayed, when we haven't loved our neighbor, when we haven't served others, when we haven't given money and tithed. Lord, you, your love is not conditional on any of those things. That's what's so offensive to people, Lord. We live in a works-based secular society where we earn a paycheck and the, the gospel just shatters that your love is unconditional and your love is relentless thank you for for the promise of grace as we come to your table to celebrate would you just make that truth a reality for us if there's somebody here they're still still carrying the burden and the weight of their sin around lord that's going to crush them may they be what pilgrim is and, and john bunyan's pilgrim progress may the burden and the weight of their sin fall off of their back and roll down the hill and fall into a grave and disappear forever and may you just liberate us god liberate us today from the tyranny of the law from the tyranny of sin bondage and guilt and shame and paranoia it just cripples us lord we languish you don't want that for your people. You want this psalm to be true of us. Blessed is the man, blessed is the woman whose sin is forgiven, whose transgression is covered, whose iniquity is not counted against them. Lord, what an amazing, astonishing declaration for David, but also for us today. Make it a reality, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.